writing your book and you're you're kind of having this discourse with your readers, but it's broken up over space and time, but it's still co-creation, even if you never hear from your readers, like you're you're participating in this meaning-making activity together. If these algorithms are getting really smart and really good and they're actually producing high quality things right. for specific use cases, that's pretty compelling. Yeah, it's like customizing the model for the task, not these, this whole idea of general intelligence might just be a red herring, like, no, 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 we need specific models to do specific things. I am a person who has a gift in writing and I have a lot of training in writing. Writing is very painful for lots of people. Like, they don't feel confident about it or they have, you know, they're neurodivergent and it's a real struggle to get started or people have dyslexia. I mean, there's all these kinds of reasons why writing is very hard. And I don't think it's the case that like, we should be struggling through, you know, making our own drafts just for the sake of the thing. But for me personally, I'm like, writing is mine and yeah, you should hammer it out on a typewriter with two fingers. Just <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a in stone, think about every word. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm pretty attached to writing, but I don't think everybody has to be. All right, uh, welcome back to Invisible Machines. Rob, today we have a great conversation with the author of Conversations with Things, uh, the Rosenfeld Media book, the co-author, um, Rebecca Evanhoe is on the show today. Um, she wrote Conversations with Things along with Diana Diebel, who's not with us. We are only talking to Rebecca and Rebecca Evanho today. But this, this was a really interesting conversation because uh, we got to dig into a lot of areas that we had sort of planned to talk about in terms of like anthropomorphizing design and then also just kind of float into new areas that I, I feel like maybe we haven't even explored yet on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think with Rebecca, there's a, like a, kind of an ongoing conversation, you know, <laughs> uh, sort of continue, to be continued. There was a before, during, and it's great to kind of bring other people in on that. I think they'll be interested in her yeah. perspective. Yeah, because we get to talk to her. We get a perspective kind of on uh, conversational AI from... You know, she's a conversational designer, but then she's also an author. Yeah. So we kind of get into what generative AI means in terms of mm -hmm. writing and creating art. Uh, we kind of talk about it organizationally a bit. Yeah. We definitely outline some worst case scenarios. Yeah. Um, yeah, a pioneer for sure in this space and kind of sought from its like very rudimentary beginnings. Kind of yeah. interesting as it, as it sort of evolves. Yeah, and we should add too that she's a, a professor at uh, Pratt mm -hmm. as well, and she teaches courses on UX writing and conversational design. So really no better brain to pick yeah. about some of these really interesting topics. So I suppose we can just get right to the conversation if you Let's want. Let's do it. Yeah, All right. sounds great. You and I had a conversation a while ago, um, and I, I, we were, this was pre-chat GPT, and and you were telling me that uh, you're like, you know, the text just not there. I think I'm just going to go write a book, another <laughs> book, like a fiction book. And I'm just going to wait for the technology to just catch up to where we are. Because I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm tired of being, um, you know, being hamstrung by the tools we have. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I just don't think we're there. And I really, I really love that. I mean... <laughs> I felt like 
you were kind of not willing to sign up for the the kind of um, I would say the, the 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 sort of facade of pretending that the technology was there to everybody um, of overstating AI and where it is and you're like I I'm not gonna I'm just gonna I'm gonna go where I don't have to uh, where I don't feel pressure to overstate where we are <laughs> and I'm going to come back when I can tell the truth. Um, and I kind of love that. At the same time, I felt like I was also kind of indicating to you without fully saying it, like, oh, I hope you write fast because it's coming like ChatGPT is coming <laughs> Yeah. Where did you net out? Did you like, did, is that what happened? Did you like have whiplash? Did you kind of flip back and then go, whoa, that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because, um, I mean, I teach a course in conversation design at Pratt. And so I always have, even if I'm not taking on a lot of client work or, you know, I was telling Josh earlier, um, before the call that I've been working more on like creative projects with friends, which has been amazing. But, um, yeah, I this semester all my students were like, "When are we going to talk about ChatGPT?" And I'm like, "I just came out last week. I don't have, <laughs> I can't, I can't give you really good content about it right now because it's new." So we just did a bunch of, you know, played with it and talked about it um, in kind of an exploratory way. Um, but yeah, I still, I obviously ChatGPT is amazing. Like my um, boyfriend asked it to make a SWOT analysis. Do you know what a SWOT analysis is? Strengths, weaknesses, yeah, opportunities, that, yeah. and threats. It's like a discussion and thinking tool for analyzing mm. opportunities. And he asked it to make a SWOT analysis for making your cat wear a hat. <laughs> and it was epic. It was a perfect SWOT analysis. It was like strengths. Your cat could look very cute in a hat opportunities you could monetize pictures of your cat in the hat weaknesses <laughs> you know threats your cat might resent you or even lash out at you if it doesn't want to wear the hat it was like perfectly stunning right it, it is doing really stunning things yeah. um but it's also not a conversation it's like i want to take that and have more rules on top of it right Con like it doesn't tell the truth. It just uses the most statistically common words for the thing, which is incredibly effective. But um, it, it the it's not how you're not really having a conversation with it in the same way. Like every time you ask it a question, it usually gives you like th three paragraphs or something, yeah. which isn't usually how we talk. And the, I mean, it's sort of like this amazing tool set, but it's still not quite what I want like I still see the the difference between what people are doing and what this thing is doing yeah well it's like yeah. a front end in desperate need of a, of a back end yeah um, like it doesn't know what time it is yeah like <laughs> once once it has access to context I think in many different ways it'll probably become more popular more yeah, powerful you want to say like how can I monetize the cat in the hat and then say okay go do that <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> here's the picture. Go Sounds good. start the Instagram Sounds account. Good. Let, Let me go. know how much we make. <laughs> or wait, yeah. can't say we. <laughs> go ahead and make an Instagram account for yeah. our cat, Tony, in a hat. Um, yeah. yeah, it's all, it's really interesting. And I, I've seen people make lists of things they think it could do in like the conversation design space. So can mm -hmm. 
can a bot kind of write itself? Can you ask it to write prompts and can you ask it to generate training data? And you can't, it will do those things, but it's still not quite like, it puts together something passable, but it's still not crafted with the way a human would craft it, right? right? Like, you know, if you're asking, I mean, I've seen people, somebody, I wish I knew who it was. Somebody on LinkedIn said, give me 25 different ways to ask this question and then a question. So you're like sort of asking it to generate, you know, utterances for your training data. And it did it. Um, but they, to my eye, they were close to the same meeting, but they weren't semantically exactly the same in every case. Um, and like training data is always supposed to come from people. So just because those are, let's say they are grammatically correct and semantically the same. Mm -hmm. Um, we still don't know if the synonyms, the sentence structures, the language patterns, if all of those are even the ones that real people are using. Right. So it's not really giving you high fidelity training data. It's giving mm. you an approximation. And I would argue that I could come up with a more representative set of sample utterances on my own. Mm -hmm. And mine would be better than ChatGPT because I have 10 years of experience looking at transcripts and sets of data where people have been talking. So like, yeah. I still see it's an incredible tool, but it's still like the latest tool in our toolkit is kind of how I feel about it today. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I, I think we mentioned this before. It's just, I'm starting to get from people this concept and I'm, and I'm, and I'm seeing it myself where you read something and they'll say, that seems like ChatGPT wrote it. <laughs> like, like we're starting to get a feel for, for it. people can't quite quite like boil it down to a formula as to why, but people are starting to get a feel for like that, that feels like chat GPT wrote it, which means there's something, there's some pattern that we're picking up. Um, now it could just be the prompting. Like it just, you know, you know, it, it could just simply be that you know, our prompting so generic and, and, and therefore it's writing very, in a very generic way. But I also think there's something about like, if I, if I read your book, I, after, you know, having several conversations with you, I can hear you in those words. Like I can, I can, like, I can tell you wrote it. And, mm -hmm. and it, had you written it with chat GPT, I am, I am sure unless, unless somehow you were able to prompt engineer yourself into it, um, which I'm not excluding as a possibility, but I, I would still get a sense that, yeah, it's well-written, but it's not you, you, you aren't in there. And, and that the connection to you as a person matters, like in terms of consuming the content, appreciating the content, like that, that is a, that is an important part of, of enjoying the content is like, is like my imagination of those words coming out of your mouth and, and behind that, the experience that you have, the experiences that you have had and, and your motivations when you wrote it, like knowing that you're a person who is very focused on wanting to help low ego. Like now I put that into the words and I realize no, she's not hyperbolic. She's 
she tends to try to be very honest. Like all of mm -hmm. that is just all between the lines that, that just, how could it come through in chat GPT? Yeah, I love sort of like all the beats of what you were saying. So like I have an MFA in fiction writing and what you do when you get that degree is look at different writers and their writing and they have a voice and you break down from a craft perspective what in the words themselves, because it's just words on a page, what in those words is creating the effect? Is it the words they're choosing? Is it their punctuation? Is it the rhythm of their sentences? Is it the length of their phrase? You know, all of those things add up to this effect. And so when people are writing, our voices, our personalities instinctively come through in these choices, or if it's a book, they're very intentional <laughs> choices. Um, so that's definitely true. And I think you can ask chat GPT to change its tone or like say that again, but angrier. Like you can ask for those sorts of things and they'll, they'll kind of do it. Um, but I think there are a lot of people in the literature world who are playing with chat GPT and asking it to do those things and kind of looking at, okay, I asked it to be snarky or I asked it to be more serious what is it, what's changed in these samples and do I agree that it's more serious? And like, there, there's some interesting digital humanities stuff happening looking at some of these questions. But I totally love that you also said like, when we're reading, especially if it's a book by someone we know or someone we admire or you know someone we've seen speak before, we are connecting, it is part of our social relationship with that person. Right. Uh, and I think that's really important. I think humans are connective creatures. Yeah, it's interesting, I, too, with like fiction writing. I feel like the most compelling fiction is generally not predictable. You want it to surprise you in certain ways. And these large language models are prediction machines. So they're they're kind of creating predictable in a way, predictable uh, outcomes that are that are um, always kind of have this air of mediocrity to them. And I think, Rob, you might have shared this article, but I was reading something about how actually like the, the when it's predicting the next word in a chain, like the one that scores highest is the most likely to appear next is often the one that will produce the most kind of like boring text. Right. And that sometimes if it if it goes with a less you know likely word to come next, all of a sudden it becomes a more interesting response. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wonder if like predictability is somehow to blame for some of the mediocrity or, or, you know, like it is, it, I mean, not. it's built in. That's one of the things that makes GPT, you know, four so good is that, you know, it doesn't always take the highest scoring word, you know, that whole temperature setting it, you can adjust that and it, it, it starts to, and that's what makes it more interesting. Otherwise it, it really is very generic and, and you can adjust, adjust that. But it just makes me kind of think that it's, we focus a lot on the words and the information in the words that are spoken or the content itself, right? Um, when I think if we look back in time, it's not the words or the content that, that actually matters most. It's the source, who spoke it, and, and their values. And, and so just the fact that some machine can can produce content and hallucinate um, or or not uh, maybe like the optimist in me says it just puts 
more emphasis on on understanding the person behind the words and knowing them and that we only care about the things spoken by the person we know and we don't care if they use chat GPT so long as they read it and approved it like then we're essentially buying into their values like like if I read something that you wrote I would know it was well researched if mm -hmm. I read something that I didn't know the author or had no connection to the author I I can't you know I can't trust that it was researched at all especially now with GPT I almost can't trust it more because it might have, might just be sure making things up so now we get down to people's personal brand becoming more important if you if you want to be heard because they got to get to know you you know they got to they got to get to know your values and and then that now now we're more interested in the person than the content i don't know if that that makes sense but yeah yeah, I think that's that's all really great. I mean, the the context of everything matters. Where the information came from right. matters. Like, you're making me think of this really cool example. So yesterday, because I live in New York, um, I was at the MoMA. I took an afternoon outing and went to the mm -hmm. MoMA, which is so lovely. And there was this in the, the main, um, kind of the main lounge entryway area there are all these couches and the wall is several stories high and on that wall was a huge i think an led screen and it was showing these ever-changing very three-dimensional looking textures and um they were changing color it was almost like an like a digital version of an octopus's skin you know like you okay. how you watch it change like not just color but texture and pattern it was kind of like that on the wall and um, it looked beautiful. There was music playing. It was, you know, very like soothing and meditative and, you know, just really arresting, like just grabbed your attention. And then I was reading in, um, you know, in the placard all about it. And it was um, an AI that had been trained on all the digital visual art in the museum. And it was like serving up kind of like an amalgam of all the art that it had seen in the digital collection. Mm -hmm. And like that gave it so much more meaning. It was like an ingestion and exhalation of every piece of art in the museum, which is so much more meaningful than a cool octopus skin texture on the wall, which right, was still right. beautiful. But like, yeah, mm -hmm. knowing, knowing what it was made of and what it was kind of reflecting back to us made it, took it from like a pretty thing to like this very artful statement. Um, so yeah. yeah, I think matters so much right yeah. well, as a writer um how are you finding yourself aligning with this new technology like chat gpt and generative ai like how do you how do you think it might factor in to your professional life moving forward as you as you're writing things i think it's gonna be real hard to get that pen out of my hand <laughs> like um <laughs> yeah. there's, so there's this writer lincoln michelle who has a really fantastic newsletter he's a, a professor and a writer and a really cool person and his newsletter has been a lot about like ai in the writing space in an industry perspective from a creativity perspective um and i think for me it's like writing is so essential to my thought process. Like I can't really tell you what I think until I've written about it or if I've 
bullet pointed about it. Like I very much am like a think in words kind of person. And so writing is my thinking tool. So if I can't write, I'm not even doing the thinking. So I would never, absolutely not. I'm a great writer. I do not want to bot writing for me because it's right. it doesn't make sense in my world. But I am a person who has a gift in writing and I have a lot of training in writing. Writing is very painful for lots of people. Like they don't feel confident about it or they have, you know, they're neurodivergent and it's a real struggle to get started or people have dyslexia. I mean, there's all these kinds of reasons why writing is very hard. And I don't think it's the case that like we should be struggling through, you know, making our own drafts just for the sake of the thing. But for me personally, I'm like, writing is mine. And yeah, you should hammer it out on a typewriter with two fingers. Chisel <laughs> yeah. it in stone. Think about every word. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'm pretty attached to writing, but I don't think everybody has to be. Yeah, I feel the same way. But I but I do see the beauty in in people who feel excluded by the act of writing, or they're not confident enough mm-hmm. to express their ideas that way. To all of a sudden have agency to to share their ideas, I think that's that's pretty powerful. Um, totally. Rob and I were talking too about. Um, you know, the, the writer strike with the writer's guild that's happening mm-hmm. right now and, and kind of what should they be banging on the table for? What should they be fighting against? What should they be asking for? Because it seems, it seems likely that generative AI will come into play in some way. Um, yeah. In, in yeah the are they, are they wrestling tools out of their own hands? Is that like, are they like, we can't use these or is it okay for writers to use it? so long as it's a writer. But if you're not a writer, you can't use it. So you need a, a writer's license to use ChatGPT. <laughs> really interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know a ton about it because I'm not in, I don't do writing in like the, the film and TV and screenwriting world, but um, it does seem like there's some specific stuff in their contract about not using AI to take their jobs. Um, and so I would just kind of look to people in the industry, like the people who are actually striking and putting their income on the line to, to yeah. back on this. But it's sort of interesting because like, let's say we had a bunch of AI generated scripts and then we took writers and had them like fix them up. Um, or choose the best one to move forward with. The meaning is still being like where the meaning is coming from is the person reading the scripts, right? And the person interacting with the scripts. Um, so it's sort of like, it, it doesn't make sense to me to use that as your creative process. Why don't we let the writers do what they have like literally been trained to do. And they have like incredible collaborative and decision-making powers to like, make the story that people are trying to tell. Um, it's sort of like, I think of it like playing apples to apples. Do you know this game? Yeah. Where you lay down, you, there's a card and then everybody picks a card and like it's really usually very funny because um, of in jokes and all the, you know, all these like funny things, but like the cards are pre-existing, but the funniness happens when the, in the contrast or the resonance of of what people are choosing. Yeah. It's fun for a game, but like that's not the way that you would like write a movie by like letting the AI kind of mash up 
some things together. Like, there's just something about it that feels like that's not how you make art. Well, I was listening to an interview with uh, with Paul Schrader. He he wrote um, screenplays for like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull, and he's directed mm -hmm. a bunch of films. And he was he made the point that that AI could write probably a really good CSI script, but it would have a hell of a time trying to write a Paul Schrader script. And I guess that gets back to the idea we were talking about, where it, it, it's it's tangled up in the source. It's like, where is this story coming from? And I think what's compelling about art and movies is that the stories are coming from human experience. They're not coming from a giant cauldron full of every everything that's been thrown up yeah. on the internet. Also, yeah. when it comes to like movies and television and motion picture art, it's writing is one aspect it's a critical aspect but it's one aspect and so if you have like unbelievable visual effects and great acting and characters and uh, great set design and all of the other things and then you have mediocre writing you can still have an entertaining you know a product um, but then you just like as you like chip away at each one of those disciplines and kind of normalize in each one taking the the art out of it it's going to add up to a just very bland experience and so you know writers looking just specifically at writer writing and feeling threatened it sort of makes sense because they're saying like look as long as the other pieces stay in place we're in you know we're threatened by AI because because these other pieces if they're great could still make for entertaining television or movies but if you look at it from the other side which is the the, the movie making side they're probably more incentivized to start using AI for like visual effects the, the more expensive things right than writing <laughs> and mm -hmm. and and so if this is the road they're gonna take it, it doesn't make a lot of sense because they're def if they're going to do it to writing, they're definitely going to do it to the more expensive things like special effects and, and set design and all of these other things. Uh, actors, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> who makes more actors or writers? Like, I don't think anybody has a question there. So, so you know, it's, it's almost like, like writing is the least big opportunity that studios have in a way. Um, and that, that if they start going after this stuff, you know, it's it's more likely it's going to hit those other areas. Um, it just hasn't quite hit the. But you, it's it's right around the corner. I mean, visual effects for sure. I mean, they're talking about um, implementing it very quickly. So yeah, yeah it's it's. I think there's still that. I, we had Seth Godin on, and it was like Ken. I asked him the question. I didn't quite get get a, I, I think a clean answer out of them, but like can an AI create a purple cow? And, and it's this idea, like, I don't know if you're familiar with his whole purple cow thing, but. I don't um, think so. Okay, it's just a, it's a great book. It's a great marketing um, example of like, a, you know, I'm gonna bastardize this because it's been so long <laughs> since I read it, but uh, it's basically they did a farmer paints a cow purple and now everybody driving by is like, oh my God, did you see the purple cow? Like just, that's all you needed to do, right? You just needed mm -hmm. to make something remarkable. And 
and and what what made us all talk about the purple cow right is the fact that you've never seen a purple cow before it's like this unusual and the question was like is ai given that it's like digested all the normal things we we see is it going to come up with with the purple cow concept because it's it's an, you know these are unusual surprises, unexpected ideas, um, essentially things that haven't been written before. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's those surprises around each corner that make us laugh, make us entertained, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm trying to tease, tease apart these things because there's a, a bunch of different things that have been like resonating throughout our whole conversation. So like, I do think that it is possible for AI to accidentally come up with something really funny or cool, but it's in that apples to apples way where like mm. it accidentally gave us a contrast. It gave us a purple cow, but who, right. who's laughing from the cow and who's the one who recognized that a purple cow is funny. It's not the cow. It's not, it's us, right? Like the meaning right. we're still the, the meaning owners and havers. Um, and then like this tension of like, to get back to what you were saying about, um, you know, it would be okay for AI to come up with like a formulaic, a script, like a CSI, or like I watch Law and Order SVU that's to the minute, you know, mm -hmm. okay, body here, <laughs> um, <laughs> this is the wrong person because it's at minute three, like <clears throat> there are a couple structures for the show, um, so there's sort of almost a difference between like like a commodified show or like a show where the pleasure is its consistency or its familiarity or like these these beats are familiar to us <clears throat> versus like I don't know there there's this movie that came out called Women Talking and it came out last year and it was like really amazing and really singular and like pretty strange but also not um and like something like that gets to excellence when like every single decision like you're saying the 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 words in the script the way the actor is saying them the facial expressions they're making the shots the the way the shot is taken the lighting the costume like all of that every single decision is adding up to the same creative vision um that's how you get like something excellent something artful and that's what people love. Like people love succession and people love breaking bad and people, you know, all these shows, um, they're excellent and they're excellent because of this, all the decisions being in alignment across the team to, to add up to the vision. I'm like, right. I don't see AI really helping any parts of that process. Right. And it's, well, surprise, it feels like right? the path like, words, Word prediction is literally the idea that you're, it's not going to surprise you, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's the algorithm is meant to not surprise you. Like that's what they're trying to do to, to find the next most likely word that should come after this, this batch of words. So it's like, in a sense, designed to not surprise. And, and to your point, like, you know, hey, purple cow, you said, well, I bet you the cow didn't think it was very funny. And <laughs> but if I said, I bet the farmer didn't think it was very funny, like which one's funnier? Right? <laughs> like the, the cow not thinking it was very funny is funnier than the, the farmer not thinking it was very funny. 
<laughs> how would AI, like who decides that, right? The person, the person has to decide that. And, and, and who would come up with that? Not AI, because, because it doesn't understand that a cow standing there purple, like we just anthropomorphize the cow, like so much just happened in our brain to make that funny, right? Totally. And if, if the cow was gray, it wouldn't be funny. And we right. get, we get why that is, you know, our <laughs> right. level. It's like, uh, one of, I think one of the points that Seth makes in that book too, is that the purple cow also is sort of emblematic of a truly remarkable product. And so to kind of tie in what we were talking about with movie making, which I think also applies to experience design and some of the processes that Rob and I outline in our book is that having that shared vision, around like what something what the end product should look and feel like combining that with with ai that's that's being sequenced with other technologies so that you can create these like hyper personalized experiences then in that way maybe ai does play a part in creating these these purple cows but it's it, i don't think it's likely to be i mean it could be a, a hiccup where it's just something funny like like i mean to me the some of the hallucinations that i get out of chat gpt are the most interesting things that I see it doing. And like, I, I like screwing around with vis or like uh, image generating tools and trying to feed them really bad prompts and trying to get like really kind of horrifying, strange pictures out of it just by yeah. the, by it not being able to fill in the gaps. Um, but I, I think if it's part of that kind of concerted effort where there's a shared yeah. vision guiding all the disciplines that need to usher it in, then maybe, maybe that's how it makes a purple cow. Yeah. Yeah, it's more like a brainstorming tool than it is a, a an output. Mm -hmm. you know? But there are lots of, I mean, it's very sophisticated, but there are lots of brainstorming tools. You know, like, uh, like, like apples to apples is a brainstorming tool in a way. Um, or, um, I mean, there's also artists who have explored exactly this concept of like, there's a group of writers, French and European writers in, I think the sixties called the Ulipo writers who um, were the early, like people experimenting with like computer generated um, stories and poems and, or just like playing with the idea of constraints and also doing things like making physical books that were, there's a, a book called, it's like a hundred, a hundred million stories or something like that. And it's the titles in French, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna dig up my, my old French pronunciation on this podcast. But um, the book was a bunch of poems, all 12, 12 lines each. And then there were like, you know, there's like a hundred of them and they're stacked up and they're cut so that each, so that you can flip the tabs and really make oh, any yeah. combination make a new poem. So the book actually contains like whatever oh, right, it is, right, right, yeah. 100 million poems. Um, and some of those poems sound like incredibly meaningful and poignant. And some of them sound kind of arbitrary. And again, the, the beauty of that book is that it very explicitly helps you understand that the meaning is on your side. Like yeah. makes the this poem beautiful and this poem arbitrary is all of that discernment is within you. Um, so like there's lots of art already exploring right. this this concept or even like um, the fountain, the guy who <laughs> this is so embarrassing. I don't know his name. <laughs> the guy who took the urinal and called it the fountain. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> the art is in the contrast. 
Yeah. So, but the, that all comes from kind of the viewer, the listener, the reader side. So I don't know. In that sense, I think it's an interesting tool, but it's not the only tool we have in that toolkit either. Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying to reread uh, Naked Lunch, the William S. Burroughs book, Mm -hmm. and he, he, he was, he would do that. He would like cut up hunks of text and just kind of rearrange things. And it, it wasn't like he was necessarily searching for meaning. Um, and I heard, I think I heard Patty Smith talking about his process and how, you know, some, some, someone was asking her like, well, what does it mean? And her answer was like, well, it, he, he didn't really want it to mean anything. He just liked the way it sounded Yeah. and like what it kind of conjured. And like uh, Rob and I've had discussions too, that like a piece of art in some ways isn't really complete until it's digested by someone else. Like if you, if you ha- paint a painting in private and no one ever sees it, is it really art? But then once someone else sees it and it conjures whatever magic yeah. in their head, then that's when it's the process is sort of completed. Yeah, it comes down to that Marshall McLuhanism, you know, the the concept that even even watching film at 24 frames per second, it's clear that our brains are filling in the frames. Like that's why we see the smooth motion, right? And so mm-hmm. the the thought process behind it is even if something is high resolution as film, still half of the movie we're inventing in our minds. So mm-hmm. half of it we've created, half of it, you know, I, I, you know, somebody else authored. So every piece of art we complete and therefore every piece of art is both ours and the artists, right? Um, and so the more low resolution the art is, like abstract paintings, the more we contribute to the final product when we view it, and therefore it isn't finalized until until we see it, uh, until the end person sees it, and and it's and it manifests differently with each person. So the art is like this. What I'll say is like asynchronous in that I created an abstract painting, and then put it up and then each person creates a new painting as they look at it right and and adds mm-hmm. meaning versus synchronous which is like now we're having a conversation and we're making art together in real time mm-hmm. uh, which which i just find super fascinating um as we think about the fact that like and i i won't get too deep into this but the idea that human connectivity might just be co-creation like that just might simply be the substance of what connectivity is. When we talk about connecting with somebody and we're like, but what is that? It's just simply co-creating because if you and I were both repeating the same words in every conversation every day, would we be enjoying our day, right? And the answer Mm -hmm. is, I think clearly no. Um, And so this idea that, you know, that we're inventing in real time and that we're co-creating like this podcast is a co-creation, right? Mm-hmm. Three of us kind yeah. of co-creating this. And, and that's what as humans, we sort of thrive on and, and live for. And, and that, yeah, this, I don't know. Did I, did, I think I just drifted us way into never, never land. So I'll, but I'll I think let. that kind of explains like what we were talking about at the beginning with like our over eagerness, to anthropomorphize or co- to connect more deeply with conversational interfaces might stem from just that, that 
we 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 think or identify subconsciously with conversation as like a, a real force of of creation uh, with other people, not just connectivity, but also you're creating something, whether even you know, even yeah. if it is like fleeting, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even even with ChatGPT, I don't enjoy co-creating with it. What I enjoy mm-hmm. is sharing it with other people. Like the first thing I do when it does something is I. I take it to a person, <laughs> check out what it did, yeah. right? And that's actually where I'm most entertained by it. Not, you know, not just yeah. doing it with it, but the first thing when it does something like you, like you just shared with us, you're, you're you know, it, it created a SWOT analysis and then, and then mm-hmm. he, he shared it with you and you shared it with us. And, and what was more fun the doing it or the sharing, right? Like that's the first instinct we have is to go share it with an actual person, right. not with yeah. another bot. <laughs> yeah. And there's, I mean, I'm really, I do really like kind of culminating this conversation, culminating in this idea of co-creation. Um, b- because yeah, what I think I agree with that wholeheartedly, like co-creation is how we get to growth. Like in a relationship, you're co-creating your relationship together and like challenging each other and, trying to be good people as often as you can. And, right. um, or, you know, when you think about like art and discourse, like participating in art, writing a book, you're like writing your book and you're you're kind of having this discourse with your readers, but it's broken up over space and time, but it's still co-creation. Even if you never hear from your readers, like you're, you're participating in this meaning-making activity together. And yeah, I think that's, that is a really good way to crystallize why I feel not a lot of people think I'll be really enthusiastic about chat GPT and I'm sort of like, okay, it, <laughs> <Right>. oh, <yeah. laughs> it's sure. It's cool. You know, but I don't feel like a burning passion to like participate with it and like do so much stuff with it. Cause I just like people better than AI. Mm. People are more interesting to me than AI. <laughs> Most of right. Yeah. And you could argue the people that do enjoy it probably just enjoy the part of sharing it afterwards and that it's yeah. a means to an end, you know? Totally. Well, maybe, maybe our roles should in some part be to make sure that people continue to be more interested in people than they are AI. I mean, we were kind of talking about ways to make AI less human, make it maybe almost a little more bland so that, I mean, Rob and I have talked about uh, the idea of the conversational interface kind of being uh, a holy grail in UX terms, right? Because it's it's a truly frictionless interface, and it also more than any other interface can really slip into the background if you let it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think the whole hallucination thing, like the, uh, you know, one of the things that's undeniable is mutation is a big part of evolution, right? And that means babies die, right? Um, and 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 for evolution, that might be okay, and it can get away with it. But uh, not in not in our world where, you know, customers, uh, you know, get spoken to in really rude ways or insulted because the machine's just experimenting with different words to see which word might improve. And I think anytime you're talking about, you know, surprising people, which is really about keeping something interesting, um, you're talking about taking risks and chances with you know, with just throwing different words in there and seeing what happens and, and getting a reaction from people, uh, negative or positive. And it seems like we're trying to tone this down, right? That's what mm-hmm. alignment is all about. It's the, 
reinforced learning by humans to like not experiment. So maybe all the stuff that's happening now is to even make it more and more bland and more and more boring. <laughs> and, and that's okay. Like we're cool with that. Like that's, that's our job anyway. That's what we want to do. So, so maybe we're on the right track. Maybe that's, there's an argument to say like we're in, in order to reach alignment and to reduce risk, um, in, you know, liability, it, we have to make it boring and that's, and that's okay. Yeah. It's, I mean, people have tweeted about this and made jokes about this, but like in the 1950s, when they would talk about AI, the like promise of AI was that we could, and automation in general is that we can take all the boring tasks out of people's hands so that people can make art and participate in art and, Mm -hmm. you know, have these like lives that are full of these other, you know, things, these wonderful things. Right. Um, but the, now it's like, oh, but like, it seems like they want to use the AI to make the art. So then what, like, where does <laughs> yeah. that, wait, I'm confused. Where I thought that was our job. To, to <laughs> lives that we were, we were promised. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now we get to the player piano book where he's like, <laughs> we're just, no, we're going to have AI so we can all get fat and sit on our couch and then die of obesity. Like, yeah, or just, yeah. or watch, you know commodified tv shows yeah the the tv show that never ends because it just generates in front of you (laughs) (laughs) and it just it stars you and you're living out all the things that you had hoped you would do before you got stuck to your couch i guess okay so we're we're diving headfirst into the matrix right now (laughs) yeah (laughs) well to bring it back to design um have you have you gotten the sense that uh chat gpt and other large language models are are pushing conversational design into a more prominent role within the the broader experience design um, world. You know, I see I see a couple different takes. Um, one of them is I see everybody at big companies their their leadership want them to figure out what to do with ChatGPT. Um, and everybody's going, do you know? Do you know? <laughs> um, I don't know how this fits into our process. I also think that the main issue right now is like it's large language models don't have any kind of truthiness guarantee. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, you can't really, you still need people heavily involved in these processes. So there's this sort of like people trying to figure out what we're doing with this stuff. There are people who are like, oh, well, conversation design just totally changed because now you can get a bot to write its own, you can get ChatGPT to write the prompts and generate the training data. Um, So actually conversation designers have nothing to do. And my response to that is like, those are things that I do but they're the means to the end of my job. My job is to figure out what people are doing, what the technology can and should be doing and get the conversation working successfully. So whatever tech stack I'm working with, even if I'm not writing the prompts and I'm not doing, you know, the training data is being handled in like a pretty different way. um, I'm still a user experience designer of conversations. Um, And then most practically, I see people trying to use it to make the parts, like can it write our prompts? Can it have a hand in the training data? Um, those seem like interesting explorations to me. I would put a lot of constraints on how I think that should be used. But um, I do think that very practically, our worlds actually involve a ton of writing, like how many emails, how many times, ta- you know, we're, mm-hmm. I don't see any real problems in using these tools to assist us 
with our yeah. with our tasks. Yeah. So that's kind of the the three part way that I'm that I'm seeing it unfold in the industry. Yeah, I went through a bit of a cycle where I was like, oh wait, because because you, you sit down, you write, let's say you write a you know a dialogue between the machine and a person you know, kind of old school IVR or whatever you want to call it, right? Like it'll say this, then they'll say this, and then it'll say this, um, sort of like sc screenwriting, right? Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then I thought, oh my God, this is like all going to change. And then I sat down and I realized, actually, I just replace what the machine says with the prompt. Like I'm, I'm not like literally writing the response anymore, but I am writing and engineering the prompt mm -hmm. and it really doesn't feel much different. It's just, it's just less literal and I'm just giving it more guidance and I'm just like, okay, here's the prompt. So, you know, here, so the prompt engineering, which, you know, I almost feel like that there's a word that's going to probably mess with us is engineering. Like that's going to throw all the writers off and say, Oh, not my job. Like, Oh no, please don't, please don't run away from this. It's, <laughs> Very much so your job. Um, yeah. yeah. And like the, what's interesting is that like people should be talking to me about how to design their algorithms because a bot can write a prompt, like a bot can write, um, and give me an intro for a chat bot who does this, right? Like a bot right. can write something like that. But the, when I give like a three hour talk on prompt writing and it's like just scratching the surface, a good prompt for like a, a true conversational bot like a service bot for example has all these things it's trying to accomplish it's trying to communicate the personality it's trying to use plain plain language there's specific sentence structures that are lower cognitive load than others um there are certain we would place information and organize the information across the sentence <clears throat> in certain ways so like right now, ChatGPT can't do that, and I can. If you're trying to make an algorithm that actually does that, talk to me, because I can tell you what those things are that the algorithms should be trying to right. emulate, right? So right. there's maybe some layers there in the future of like, oh, let's make, if these algorithms are getting really smart and really good, and they're actually producing high quality things right. for specific use cases, that's pretty compelling. Yeah, it's like customizing the model for the task, not these, this whole idea of general intelligence might just be a red herring, like, no, 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 we need specific models to do specific things, just like, you know, rules and, and designed, and then it's more about sequencing these things and, and getting them to work together than creating one uber intelligent algorithm that can, you know, suit any circumstance from writing dialogue to, you know, getting our internet back up and running with Comcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what's like most exciting in some ways about GPT isn't that it can write essays. It's that it, it's, it's a really fluid conversational interface. It shows how dynamic it can be and how natural it can be for people to communicate with something. So once, once it's able to provide context and it's connected to a, an ecosystem where yeah. software is being automated and stuff, then, then I think it starts to get more interesting and maybe starts to look more like uh, Rob and I are big fans of, of the movie Her, the way they kind of handled mm -hmm. um, conversational AI, I suppose, in that sense, where he, yeah. he would he would talk to it and type with it. But sometimes the OS would show him pictures, you know, 
it was contact. Sometimes it would show them something on a screen over there, but it was all kind of multimodal and it was just this experience, this tapestry that kind of ran through his day. Yeah, mm -hmm. not as excited as we are with the movie Galaxy Quest though, where, mm, where aliens had sucked down our, this like television show. I don't know, have you seen Galaxy Quest? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> the aliens like study, like basically transcribe all of our, like this, this, it's like Star Trek really is what, like I think of all episodes of Star Trek, then learned our language from it and learned everything and then came down to earth because they thought it was a documentary about the <laughs> truth and that we could, that, that this, that this group of individuals could save their planet. So they find the cast. It's pretty funny. Anyway. Oh man. Okay. That's, I love, I love that. And what's that movie where it's aliens, but the hero, the heroine of the movie is a linguist. Oh, that's uh, the arrival. I yeah. Think Amy Adams. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Exactly. So I always think like, it's it, 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 really, really like the alien that's sucked down all the words from the internet, learned our language and then now like talks to us. Right. And everyone thinks that all the things are true. It, yeah. yeah. Like in, in Galaxy Quest, the aliens don't, they've built this spaceship replica from the show, but they don't know how to use it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is sort yeah. of where we are. Yeah. And fun fact, Rob actually worked second unit, right? In the audio department on Galaxy Quest. Yeah, yeah. Quest. That was like my last on my way out. Yeah. Cool. Now, this is making me want to use it. It feels like there's a couple of different analogies in there for how <laughs> uh, we're using. It's like, is the AI the aliens? Are we the aliens? Uh, <laughs> Who's the aliens in all of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, then, then there's the idea that like this around, I guess it was a little before ChatGPT came out, you know, there's there's confirmation that, that unidentifiable flying objects exist. They might not necessarily be aliens, but for some reason, that made less of an impact than, than uh, ChatGPT. I think people were way more blown away by that than the than confirmation that there are things flying around that we don't know what they are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you're. I had forgotten about that, but you're totally right. It was like dozens of of strange things happening. Maybe ChatGPT is just a government conspiracy to distract That's us probably it. <laughs> from the fact that aliens got here when like last summer. Yeah, was... government's a lot smarter than I thought they were, though. <laughs> <laughs> and now you sound like ChatGPT because that's not correct. So they still can't figure out how to get rid of inflation without <laughs> having us all like lose our jobs. So <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to imagine they could thread that needle. Um, but yeah, this has been great. This is I don't know if uh... yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time. Rebecca, it's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. I feel like it's a conversation that we could we could just continue some other time too. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This is excellent, excellent co-creation, and I really appreciate <laughs> you asking me to um, to be here. And I really love these conversations that you know are centered in our industry, but reach out into these other like important, I would say, more important parts of human existence, like art and connection. So I I yeah. really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, yeah. In our, in our little echo chamber, we get to go out every once in a while and see what's really happening in the world. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And we made some beautiful art together. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. All right. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of Invisible Machines. Be sure to subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts so you can hear new episodes as they are released. 
You should also subscribe and like the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Big thank you to everyone at UX Magazine for your support in making this podcast, especially our producer Kate Timchenko, who has done an amazing job booking some fantastic guests. Uh, thank you also to our executive producer, Elias Parker, who has also done a lot of work booking some pretty incredible guests for this show. And thank you, as always, to the OneReach.ai marketing team and our video editor, Mike Litvinov, for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We will see you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.